Hello, everyone. Welcome to Creative Bio Labs live webinar series. Firstly, please allow me to briefly introduce Creative Bio Labs to all of our audience today. Creative Bio Labs is a contract research organization actively exploring immunotherapy discovery. With Enrobotics expertise, substantial resources, and hands-on experience, Creative Bio Labs is dedicated to assisting our clients with the most satisfactory single-domain antibody-related services, covering the full process for single-domain antibody development. From target identification and antigen design to single-domain antibody screening, evaluation, and custom manufacturing. In response to the increasingly severe consequences of COVID-19 infection, we are pleased to contribute to our experience in single-domain antibody discovery and development to help our customers generate high-quality therapeutic single-domain antibodies against the COVID-19. SARS-CoV-2 is a highly contagious and pathogenic coronavirus that causes acute respiratory disease, also known as COVID-19, and threatens human health and public safety. Research has shown that neutralizing antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 is one of the most effective treatments for COVID-19. Compared with traditional antibodies, single-domain antibodies have smaller molecular weight and higher hydrophilicity, which can bind epitopes that traditional antibodies cannot. At the same time, single-domain antibodies have higher tissue penetration and stability and are easy to modify, optimize, and humanize. Meanwhile, they are suitable for large-scale industrial production. Due to the above characteristics, single-domain antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 will be of great significance for COVID-19 treatment. It is our great honor to have invited Dr. James Nismith to walk us through the development of his novel SARS-CoV-2 neutralizing single-domain antibodies, and how his team found a candidate demonstrating promising therapeutic efficacy in the hamster model of COVID-19. The topic of today's webinar is a potent SARS-CoV-2 neutralizing single-domain antibody shows therapeutic efficacy in the Syrian golden hamster model of COVID-19. And our speaker today, Dr. James Nesmith. After obtaining his PhD, Dr. Nesmith moved to Dallas, Texas for a two-year postdoc program in Dr. Steve's Brands lab, where his major research was to determine the structure of TNF receptors. Dr. Nesmith returned to the UK in 1995 and set up his lab at the University of St. Andrews. Over 23 years, his lab has determine the mechanism and structures of various proteins, including membrane proteins. In 2017, Dr. Nismith moved to Oxford. Then in 2019, he became the director of the new Rosalind Franklin Institute and started his work on single-domain antibodies at the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Nismith's lab has been recognized with many awards, notably the election to the Royal Society in 2014. So before Dr. Nismith begins his presentation, I want to quickly remind our audience that we will have a QA session at the end of the presentation. And if you have any questions during the presentation, please type your questions in the QA box. And Dr. Nismith will get to them after his talk is finished. 
And now let's welcome our speaker, Dr. James Nismith. Dr. Nismith, thank you so much for presenting your important findings to us today. You may begin when you're ready. Thank you. I'm just going to check that this can be seen properly. Yes. Can somebody not? Yep, perfect. Okay, well, thank you, everyone. It's, uh, and hopefully, I can. Uh, I'm using a shorter title than the rather longer one in the program simply because I couldn't get all the words on the title slide. But I'll try to walk you through what we've been doing here in the next sort of 45 minutes and leave some time for questions at the end. So, So I should declare a conflict of interest. Uh, so the work that I'm going to discuss with you has um, been filed with multiple patents on this, and we're currently negotiating a commercialization uh, uh, approach. And as a named inventor, of course, I have a financial stake in that outcome. So of course, it's, I just want to be open with everyone before we start. So uh, we've this work I'm going to describe is is mostly now in the in the literature um, and. Uh, has been awarded a Horizon Prize for its impact on the COVID pandemic. So um, this is to remind me to uh, call out all of the really talented people who came together in the middle of the pandemic to do this work. Uh, and there is every single person on this slide made an important contribution. So th this slide is just a little bit of background. I'm sure many of the people in this call will know this, so I won't spend very long on it. Um, Human antibodies have two chains. So they have the heavy chain here, and then they have a smaller, lighter chain. And the complementary determining regions, the part that actually bind to substrates or epitopes, uh, are here, and it's shared across these two domains. In llamas, and this is Fifi, the Franklin llama here, you have only the heavy chain uh, in, a, in a limit in about 20% of your antibody uh, population they have only a heavy chain. And that means that their entire complementary determining region is contained within a single polypeptide. And that polypeptide, which I've colored in red, is about 130 amino acids. And that part of the molecule is known as the nanobody. And so th this is clearly much easier from molecular biology and structural biology and stability point of view, that this is a very compact domain and, and much easier to engineer than the human systems where you've got to consider the interactions between two separate protein chains. The two ways that one can derive nanobodies, and I'm going to discuss both of them today, are first, we can inoculate uh, the llama. This is perhaps the most well-known. And so in this case, one takes protein into Fifi and to prime, and then after a period you boost, and then take a very small blood sample and from that, you can pan out to see what nanobodies have been made in response to whatever it was you inoculated the llama with. Uh, now, I want to stress the llama doesn't suffer in this process. It doesn't get sacrificed or die. The llama continues to run around and eat grass and, and do the things that llamas do. Uh, there's no harm to the animal in this process. The alternative way, and actually this is where we started way back in, uh, just after the genome of SARS was published, is taking a naive library uh, of nanobodies and panning them to see if you can identify hits. In this case, I've noted a little hit here in blue. 
And so you're looking for the initial hit, and from that you can then optimize uh, by some uh, DNA mutation to see if you can enhance the binding. So this is naive library lab-based maturation uh, as opposed to uh, LAMA-based uh, maturation. So just a little bit more on the structure of nanobodies, what makes them so appealing is that they have these compact little beta sheets and the CDRs are, are and you'll see me use this nomenclature repeatedly. So CDR1 connects residues 26 to 32, CDR2 between 52 and 56, and CDR3 between 1950. In a three-dimensional look, it looks something like this. So you have the N-terminus at the top of the molecule. Okay. So our target was to break the interaction between the human ACE2 and the spike protein, because the evidence was from the original SARS epidemic, SARS-CoV-1 and MERS, that if you disrupt that initial entry process, you would have a potential therapeutic. So the first of the papers came out, uh, just I put it there so that people want to go away and look it up. And what we had done was we had naively, the naive library gave us the following hit H11 uh, here, which had this sequence. And then by sequential mutation uh, along these, we panned out the following mutations. And so in bold letters are the mutants that we were able to identify. And we were using on the right-hand side here, you'll see that we were using uh, SPR as a means of binding affinity. So we looked to see if we could identify strong binders. And by the time we got to H11H4, which is our most potent one from this series, we had a binding of around five nanomoles. Now, the important thing was to know whether it was in fact a competitive inhibitor or not. And that was done using SPR and a little bit of stuff at the bottom here. So what you're looking at in the dashed lines are controls. So we have ACE2FC mobilized on the surface of the chip, and we flow over our uh, spike protein, which is in the dashed lines. Um, and we treat that in the presence of a control antibody, which is anti-flu. And as you see, you get a nice binding of ACE2 and the spike, so you see a big response. We do the same thing with the RBD domain. We actually fished with the RB domain uh, rather than the whole spike protein, but we confirmed that we both hit the spike and the RBD. And of course the control antibody makes no difference. The nanobody on its own, H11H4, does not bind to the ACE2, which is good. The control antibody doesn't bind to the ACE2, but in both the spike and the RBD, we intercept the binding. So if you pre-treat the spike or the RBD molecule with the nanobody, then you see no binding to H2. So this was the first evidence that we had a competitive system, which was the, the goal of the work was to identify potent competitive nanobodies that could potentially be therapeutics. We then tested these in a cell-based assay where you have cells that display the proteins and we were able to block the interaction. Structural biology moved very quickly in the lab. We were able to get a very high resolution crystal structure here shown in red and yellow. And this is the interaction between the nanobody H11H4 in, in yellow uh, and the RBD molecule in red here. So this is from the original uh, uh, strain. I think we call it the Victoria strain of the virus that we originally had. And you can see the three loops in the nanobody, CDR1, 2, and 3, colored in purple, 
and these control the interaction between the nanobody and the target. Using ITC data on the left-hand side, we can see that we bind to the RBD very potently with about 12 nanomole binding energy. We were able to determine the electron microscope structure, so the cryo-EM structure of the spike protein bound to the nanobody here. And there are three copies, of course, in the spike protein. And we have what is known as a two-down, one-up form. So the one-up is the RBD in the active form, ready to engage the receptor. And you see it's capped here with an H11, H4. The other two RBDs are down, and they're also capped with H11, H4. And as a result of this arrangement, we pick up extra binding energy. So in fact, delta H increases, so it's more favorable. But we also freeze out the dynamics of the spike protein, which makes the entropic penalty higher. And as a result, the binding to the spike protein is weaker than the binding to the RBD. Okay. And of course, in the virus, it is the concern is the spike protein, not the RBD. So th this was the first uh, structural description of these interfaces and been able to pull it right down to an atomic level. When we look at the epitope, we see uh, that we're recognizing in red this surface from the RBD molecule, and I've colored in yellow the three loops. So CDR3 begins at residue 100 and goes all the way to 106. You'll recall that those were the residues where we saw the changes in the sequence. So all the changes that take us from one micromole to about 10 nanomole occur in this short stretch in CDR3. CDR2 is here and involves this arginine, serine, and another serine here. CDR1 in this class of nanobodies doesn't really interact with the protein at all. Okay. And I've just shown uh, what's called an exploded diagram to show you all these interactions. So why does the molecule inhibit the binding of ACE2? So when the nanobody is bound here to the RBD, the ACE2 molecule can no longer dock. You create a clash between the H11H4 and the ACE2. We can see this in another way. If I color the surface of the RBD in blue, where the ACE2 binds, I color in red where the nanobody binds, and in green are the areas that directly overlap. So the binding of the nanobody obscures the binding site of ACE2, but it also competes with ACE2 for its binding site. Now, the key test of these molecules is, of course, in their neutralization of the virus. And so we used as a means to judge potentiation, we used an antibody called CR3022. That was a cross-reactive antibody that had previously been reported for SARS-1, and it binds to a different epitope, an RBD. This is an example of where structural biology can really inform these early experiments against the virus. So here is the CR3022. You estimate in purple, it is against the live virus. So this is a live plaque assay is about 84 nanomoles. The H11H4, now we presented it in this assay as a bivalent molecule in which we had attached the nanobodies to heavy chain and we were able to get an IC50 of around about four nanomoles. When we added the two together, this was the first demonstration of additive neutralization. 
And so these molecules together are additively neutralized with a KD, an IC50 of around about two or less nanomoles. So these are potent against the live virus in culture. So more recently, we've gone back and examined these um, mutations. The reason being that this work is incredibly rapid. So the use of naive libraries to get five nanomolar potent nanobodies was done in the space of only a few weeks. So if the UK is a target of the 100-day therapy, so being able to go from nothing to five nanomole IC with an IC50 of below 10 nanomole against living virus was incredibly encouraging. So we went back to look to see what it was about these nanobodies why were the changes giving as they increase in affinity? And could we supplement that understanding as a means to improve lab-based methods? So the LAMA herself, Fifi, is not subject to automation. She can't make an immune system grow any faster, but the lab, we can. So we carefully dissected out all of these nanobodies, looking at their binding energies and their structures, and we came to some surprising conclusions. So the first conclusion is that CDR3, where all the changes occur, doesn't change anything about its interaction. And that was a big surprise to us. We'd expected these loops would change, but they don't change at all. In fact, the loop that shows the biggest structural change across the family is, in fact, CDR1, where there is no sequence change. CDR2 shows a little bit of a sequence change. Now, what is happening is that the mutations in CDR3 are being compensated by changes in the conformation in CDR1. So CDR1 here flips phenylalanine 29 as a result of the loss of protein 98. So this is mutated to glycine, I think, creating a pocket. And as a result, the phenylalanine pops into place to fill the gap. And so conserving the structure of CDR3 was really important to the nanobodies, that's why these changes occur. But the question is, well, what drives the affinity then? Since with, you know, the CDR3 has very different side chains, the contacts are somewhat different as a result. CDR1, which doesn't contact the nanobody, sorry, doesn't contact the virus, makes all the changes. So what is driving the affinity? So what drives the affinity is CDR2 in this case. And in CDR2, we have an arginine residue here, arginine 52, and that makes a beautiful bivalent salt ridge with glutamate 484 of the virus, and that stacks above phenylalanine 490. Now, we drew attention to that interaction oh, when, as soon as our first nanobody structure came out, and we were the first people to really pull, uh, one of the first people, I should say, to pull attention to that residue. It was such a key pi cation interaction. And what we see in the nanobodies is that, in fact, what's driving the optimization of the nanobodies is the shortening of the distance in the salt bridge. So if you look at them here, they become much more ideal distances. <coughs> the four atoms, the nitrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and oxygen become coplanar. And the pi stacking interaction becomes more ideal. So what is actually happening is that CDR3 is changing in such a way as allows the nanobody to optimize the CDR2 interaction. So it's not the changes in CDR3 that are increasing affinity. They are allowing the nanobody to increase affinity by optimizing this key salt bridge and pi cation. 
Now, we reasoned and, and speculated that this would be such an important interaction. And of course, it's an important interaction, as we now know, for the human immune system. This arginate, this glutamic acid at 484 was one of the first residues to be mutated in the immune evasive strains. So knocking out that residue begins to knock out the nano, uh, knocks out the binding of our nanobody. With uh, the, the team in Cambridge, we've been taking electron the maps, so the Coulombic maps from electron microscopy, and using that as a rational design method to understand how we can modify the sequence of the nanobodies to reduce the entropic penalty they pay on binding. Because we know we get increased affinity, the question is how can we reduce the entropic penalty and try to improve the binding? So this is taken from the paper. I don't have time to uh, work my way through all the analysis, but the, the bottom line is here. So this engineered hybrid molecule does not show the penalty. So these numbers are relevant between the RBD and the spike. But what we've been able to do is by engineering, we've been able to avoid the penalty for the spike. And so this is the tightest rational design fished nanobody against the spike protein. So we've been able to improve binding against the spike by a combination of structural biology as well as maturation. We can see beautifully how this is working in the real system. So all the H11 systems have this two down, one up. But when we look at the engineered system, we see that it is now capable of a one up and two down and a two up, one down form. And so as a result, it's a more flexible, less ordered molecule and we don't pay the same entropic penalty. And as a result, we're able to slightly improve the binding. Our real goal was to demonstrate whether or not these molecules could have an effect inside the hamster. And we've been busy with that now. So this is a, where we are in the hamster model. So we, I, we took nanobodies now from the llama directly. So these nanobodies uh, we're going to call C5. So they came from panning of the llama. And these molecules bind tightly to the RBD molecule here. Now, interestingly, in contrast to what I showed you for the H11H4 series, in the spike protein, they force an all-down conformation of the spike. Yeah. The X-ray structure reveals that it recognizes a different epitope than that which we'd seen before. So although it's binding to the RBD, and I'll show you data, it's competitive with H2, it's recognizing a different part of the surface of the nanobody, of the RBD, sorry. So we're able to sample a different bit of the RBD surface with this nanobody. Now, one of the things that Ping had said at start and I should emphasize is that nanobodies have a much smaller bite I know, I think I have a diagram later where I show this. But the interesting thing about the nanobodies compared to antibodies is over our time when these data are published by us and also by Ian Wilson's lab in Scripps, and uh, the, so some very nice work from people in uh, China and Texas, is that nanobodies combine to multiple different forms of the spike protein. Because they're so small, they're able often to bind to, in this case, you see all down, but it's also possible the nanobody can bind to the two down, one up form. Similarly for H11H4, 
it is possible for it to bind to a different form of the spike. So this ability of the nanobodies to intercept the viral protein over all the life cycle of the virus, I think is one of the, its key unacknowledged benefits really. Because for those who work in this field, you will know the spike protein is thought to be made in the all down form anchored by a lipid molecule. And that was discovered and published in science by Emery Berger. And that lipid molecule seems to anchor the spike in this all down form, which you might imagine is the budding form of the virus. Well, our nanobodies can intercept that form, but they can equally intercept it when you've removed the lipid and you have these conformationally variable two up, one down, two down, one up forms. The nanobodies are able to work across the spectrum of those conformations. And this just shows at the bottom, there's no problem with the one-up form. The nanobody could easily recognize it. We were able to determine a rather high resolution, the binding of uh, other nanobodies that I'll talk about. And these are F2 and C1. So these bind to the same epitope that I showed you with CR3022. Now, interestingly, these are also neutralizing. And they recognize the same nanobody as one published by the Belgium lab that's called VHH72, which is an nanobody. And this epitope that C1 and F2 are recognizing is thus far sequence-wise being conserved across all the viruses to date. And it's also found in MERS and in SARS-1. So it's a very conserved epitope of the virus. Now it's normally buried deep inside the spike protein. So normally it's occluded, but it can be exposed. In our hands, when we add F2 or C1 to the spike protein, the spike protein collapses and unfolds. So these neutralize by a different mechanism. So they don't prevent ACE2 binding, although in fact C1 does, because this loop does compete with ACE2. But they also work by pulling the virus apart. So the viral protein, the spike protein is in a way disarmed by the binding to this epitope. And that's a mechanism that CR3022 is also thought to operate by. So where are we looking across the epitopes that are recognized? We have the C2F1 here in purple, that's its conserved epitope. Red is the additional that you pick up in C1. And I've colored two new, anti another antibody here, H3, and they recognize this ACE2 interface. So in green here is the binding that is shared between this H3 and C5. And in yellow is only C5. And in gray then is only H3. The epitopes can be shown in the spike protein as such. So this is RBD. So here is the ACE2 epitope. It's really confined, confined to this interface here, this surface. The conserved epitope is this beta strand here. This is just a surface diagram to see where these epitopes are in the surface. So I mentioned that you can bind to this side epitope as well as disrupting the binding here. So you can bind to the side epitope. You can also disrupt the spike. You can also compete with ACE2. So this is an example of an antibody that binds to the side but competes with ACE2 because the way it binds to this side-on epitope does prevent ACE2 binding. 
this is an example where you can bind to this epitope and not at all compete with ACE2 binding. When we look to see across all the nanobodies to the date of this review, you can see how they cluster right across this interface. So this is a highly immunogenic peptide, and it's also seen in the human immune system. What I can say is that as you move into Omicron, you are, although you're not directly mutating the residues, you are mutating around that epitope, and you begin to see the loss of binding in the Omicron strains. And it's to do with disruption, structural changes around this epitope, rather than simply the sequences within it. And so in the Omicron is the first one in our hands that we've begun to see disruption at this epitope. This is the story with the RBD. And then this is the family of nanobodies bound to what I'm going to call the ACE2 surface. And here is a human antibody shown for scale. And you can see that the single chain nanobodies really mimic the human antibody. But in contrast, the human antibody has this whole width. The nanobodies are half that size. So the nanobodies are much smaller and therefore much more able to get at different epitopes in the human system can identify. This is just an example here of another nanobody system where you can bind multiple nanobodies to RBD, something probably not possible with human antibodies. And finally, on the right-hand side, I just need to move something and I can't see properly in my own screen. You can see I've shown the surface of the RBD with different nanobodies, showing how they reach across the surface and recognize subtly different epitopes. These are all the competitive neutralizers. When we look at our own H3 and C5, we see here H3 and C5 only weakly overlap, but both of them make play of this glutamic acid 484, and they both use arginine from the nanobody, but in H3 it comes from CDR1, in C5 it comes from CDR2, which emphasizes the importance of this residue. Looking at the conserved epitope here, so here we have 375 to 379, you see this epitope really is quite subtle. There's some nice hydrogen bond interactions and van der Waals interactions. So the question is, how then do we look at neutralization? So for C5 on its own with RBD, we have very strong binders, extremely strong. With H3, we're also very strong. And in terms of neutralization, then with C5, we are sub-nanomolar neutralization of the Victoria strain of the virus. H3 is also a potent neutralizer of the virus. And these are issued as trimeric molecules. And C1, which is the one that binds to the site epitope, is not competitive with H2 or strongly competitive with H2, is much weaker neutralizer. So this is something that we have tended to see replicated as the most potent neutralizers, which is of course important for therapy, are those that bind to block ACE2. There is no simple correlation that we have observed between binding affinity and neutralization for the other side epitope. So the, for the competing epitope, the tighter the binding, the better the neutralization. So animal studies, then for us, we have to go through uh, in the UK Public Health England process at the time. So the gold standard neutralization, so we stick C5 onto a heavy chain, 
we can modify that heavy chain, but we get a neutralization in a print assay at two picomole. So these are truly extraordinarily potent molecules. And in contrast to some human antibodies, we get almost complete neutralization. So we're very close to 100% neutralization with this construct in the virus. So this is just added to the, the cells and we can get two picomole binding. So taking this molecule then and adding, treating a, an animal. So the hamster is infected at day zero. So uh, it's drip, the virus is dripped into its mare and introduced into the lung. You wait a day. So the virus is now established in the host. This is a full day. This is the therapeutic regime rather than a short time period, which is more properly thought of as the prophylactic regime. So the animal is then administered in this case by IP at four milligrams per kilogram of the uh, fusion molecule I showed you. So that's injected IP into the hamster, and we can see the uncontrolled, untreated animals lose about 20% of their body weight over seven days. But those that have had an injection of the antibody, nanobody hybrid, this molecule here, they begin to recover body weight as early as day four, and by day seven are almost fully normal again. So this was the first demonstration that IP uh, injection of this was potent against, this molecule was potent in the animal model of SARS. Now, one of the advantages of nanobodies that is not possible for human antibodies is you can construct these simple trimers or head-to-tail connections of the molecules. So in this case, we've taken the C5 nanobody and we've simply connected it by a short linker to another C5 to another C5. And this molecule, this trimeric molecule is highly neutralizing. So in essence, at three picomolar, it's every bit as potent a neutralizer as the FC fusion. So these incredibly potent neutralizers, I think they still remain the most potent neutralizers known. And this trimeric design was of course pioneered by ablinks against RSV. So now taking this molecule into the animal. So this is a busy slide, so let me walk through it rather slowly. So we're doing something similar. At day zero, the animal is infected. And in blue, untreated animals are dead, in this case, by day six. Okay, so this, this particular uh, breed of hamster is even more sensitive to the virus. So the hamsters lose 20% of their body weight after six days and are sacrificed. We can give the nanobody as the trimeric molecule two hours pre-infection. Sorry, I should have PR here. That should be pre-infection. IN is intranear. So in red, what we've done is two hours before we introduce the virus, okay, we have dosed the animal with the C5 trimer in its nose at four milligrams per kilogram, and it shows no illness at all. So these nanobodies, are, this construct is prophylactic. So given before exposure to the virus, then you get a protective effect. In green then, sorry, I'll go down to uh, purple. So this trimeric molecule can also be injected intraparatineally. So the same as the FC fusion. So these trimer molecules we're now injecting, and you see they behave almost identically to what we saw for the FC uh, hybrid molecules that were injected 
Initially, the animals begin to lose weight. By day three to four, they begin to recover and they fully recover by day six, seven. So this molecule can be injected, but as I showed in prophylaxis, it can also be dripped into the nose. So it can be given topically. And this topical administration of nanobodies is, I think, one of the key advantages for respiratory diseases. That's not possible for human antibodies. Now, in green, then, is the therapeutic 24 hours after infection. We can drip in four milligrams per kilogram. And in the orange lines, we've reduced the dose to 0.4 milligrams per kilogram. So in both cases, the animal, you wait a day. The animal is infected and, and clearly beginning to develop symptoms. You then administer these molecules through the near through the nose at four megs or 0.4 megs, and you see much more rapid response from topical administration than you do from systemic. So that shouldn't be surprising. SARS is a, a respiratory virus. It's predominantly in the upper respiratory tract and in the lung. So an IP injection has to get into the bloodstream and get around before it can get to the site of action. The fact that it is still potent by this way is incredibly encouraging. But the in topical administration, of course, is directly at the site of where you're worried about. But you can see we're obviously penetrating, and I'll show you some pathology, we're able to penetrate into the lung. Oh, sorry. So when in the paper there is some pathology, we were able, <coughs> excuse me, to penetrate deep into the lung and show that there was some lung scanning in these animals. So these animals had a thoroughgoing COVID infection, but we were able to reach the target site, both by IP, so injection, but also by introduction directly into the near of the animal. So these molecules are potent both ways. Now, one of the huge advantages of this trimeric presentation is that it can be made in yeast, and it is infinitely variable. The linkers between the C5 molecules can be altered. And you can swap in different nanobodies. You don't have to have a homotrimer. You can add in heteromolecules. And given they can be made in yeast, they can actually also be made in E. coli. But there, you have concerns about LPS contamination. They are very, very cheap to make. What remains unknown about these molecules is whether or not the extent to which they will precipitate or lead to a human immune response when given to humans. So the animals suffer no ill effect, but of course, that isn't the same as knowing that a chronic administration won't lead to antibodies. There is some data from other nanobodies that it is possible very simply to a few mutations will remove uh, immunogenicity. Uh, we haven't tested those in our system, and that's one of the things that we would seek to do in commercialization. An advantage of topical administration rather than IP is mucosal immune response is quite different than the immune response you'll get by injection. And clearly, the less you use, the better. So we've also used the nanobodies to do some testing for uh, ELISAs as a means. So this was early in the process when there was concerns about developing simple assays. Nanobodies turned out to be extremely potent in this too. And so we looked at our various combinations of nanobodies, and it's possible to, to test all of these and work out which is the most sensitive. 
So we were able to comfortably get down with the C5F2 uh, thing, very, very, very low uh, detection in spike protein, well down into the nanogram range of detection. And in fact, we were able to measure uh, the virus using these two nanobodies at comparable levels to any commercial kit then on the market. So nanobodies have a role as a therapy, they have a role as a diagnostic, and in comparison to human antibodies, they're much, much faster, and they're much easier to make and control. So I think these molecules have a huge set of potential as we move down through this work. So these are just the calculated final detection limits. So we're able to get down to really very small picogram levels of sensitivity and very, very small amounts of uh, live virus and pseudovirus detection. So really comparable to anything that's seen in any of the commercial systems. Now, I finished my talk. I just want to summarize a few key points. So we show that you can raise potent neutralizing nanobodies from naive library screening. It is possible to get nanobodies within a few weeks or even days that can neutralize a SARS-CoV-2 virus. These nanobodies can be guided by structural biology to be given in combinations, so the ability to target different epitopes at the same time. Structural biology is no longer a limiting factor. In fact, we, it was faster for us to do the structural biology than it was to get access to the CAT3 lab to do the neutralization experiments. So structural biology should be seen as an adjunct tool in nanobody discovery, in my view, particularly where you're trying to do uh, either uh, therapies where you might want to use combinations, but also in understanding epitopes and the potential for escape. We showed that with very potent molecules, so molecules which had uh, sub-nanomolar binding, it was possible then to engineer them as trimers, uh, which can be made in simple systems. And those simple systems are effective at treating COVID in an animal model at 0.4 milligrams per kilogram given nasally or also injected. So these molecules hold out real potential as therapeutics. Now, some of you are likely to ask me whether or not there's a problem in the fact that glutamic acid 484 is now gone in the Omicron strain. Since this is public talk and I have a conflict of interest to, uh, and the data aren't published, but we do have uh, nanobodies that are not sensitive to those mutations. Okay, so it is possible to identify nanobodies and, and we have and others have nanobodies that retain potency against all strains of Omicron currently known and are also remain potent against the original, what we call Victoria strain. So I think the future for nanobodies in these diseases looks very promising. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 has been an unmitigated disaster for the planet. But in terms of pushing forward with nanobodies as therapies, I think that we've seen a revolution in their use and understanding and the speed at which they can be deployed. And because of this, I. I finish by saying I think we are confident that whether it is us or one of the other competing groups, we will see nanobodies in the clinic against SARS-CoV-2 quite soon, I think, at the beginning of phase one trials. I'm sure that we will see data from this. Now, whether or not we've seen the back of SARS-CoV-2, we will not have seen the back of other respiratory viruses. 
So the data that come from this study, whoever does it, I think will mean that nanobodies are well positioned to be used in the next pandemic, whenever that arrives. So with that, I will stop and thank everybody for their attention. Thank you so much, Dr. Nesmith. Great presentation. I hope our audience enjoyed this presentation as much as I did. Okay, without further delay, uh, let's get to our QA session. So we have one question from our audience, Marco. Thank you. Uh, Marco is saying, it's amazing work. Thank you so much for sharing this. Did you perform humanization of the nanobody? If so, can you share some technical input? So that's a really good question. So we have not yet done that uh, in, a, in the open source literature, but there is a recipe in the literature for how to do this. So the epitope that is most commonly recognized in nanobodies is at the end terminus. It's remote from the CDRs. And I guess that makes sense since that's maybe the, the bit that's very different between them and the human. So we have not done that. We have made mutations elsewhere in the nanobody for other reasons and we've never noticed that it perturbs affinity. So we would be confident that we can reduce the immunogenicity of these if this is a problem. But there, uh, there is a paper from Mulverns et al, and I think GBC a few, about 10 years ago on humanization. So we know that it can be done, but nobody really knows to what extent it's a problem yet. And it will be different when we use these trimeric presentations, so it's something that's very much on our mind. It's a great question. Thank you. Our second question is, so why did you focus on the hamster model and not any other rodent or other species? Does okay, it mean so COVID-19? That's a good question. So the Syrian hamster was, um, is particularly sensitive to the virus. So it turns out that uh, rats and mice are not particularly sensitive to SARS-CoV-2. So the original Victoria strain doesn't show a lot of symptom in them. And in fact, it isn't really useful as a model. The hamsters, for some reason, are exquisitely sensitive to the disease. And as you can see, the weight loss is dramatic. So the reason we used them is because we were able to get a very clear signal from them. Now, Work has moved on and there is a transgenic mouse now available with a human ACE2 that does show uh, quite severe sensitivity to the original strains. Some of you may know that the Omicron strain doesn't cause illness in hamsters to the same extent. So the signal that we used was weight loss. In the animals, it's a very easy way to, to monitor this. But in the uh, now that same model against the Omicron strains especially one and two, doesn't show very much weight loss at all. The mouse system may be more promising to switch to for the Omicron strains in animal studies. That remains under active investigation. So Omicron is milder in the hamster. Now, I'm not going to get into the debate whether Omicron is milder in the human, but it's certainly milder in the hamster. Thank you. A third question is, you have discovered your nanobody using a naive library. Does it indicate that non-immunized llama may have naturally already nanobodies against the COVID-19 or rather there exists a very small epitope in other viruses? That's a really good question. I'm going to speculate because I don't know the answer. 
So one way I think about this is there's probably a set of weak nanobodies against almost any epitope you ever get. And of course, what happens in llamas is they then optimize uh, by somatic mutation. And we do the same thing. So my guess is that they have a repertoire uh, that is will pick up something and hold on to it. So in this case, what it held on to was that picatine. So I don't think the llama had previously been infected by SARS-CoV-2. I think it had a repertoire that allowed it to recognize this. And we see this again and again. When you pan with naive leverage, you can get naive hits, but they're very weak until really this work demonstrated that it wasn't often possible to push them to high affinity. And that's what we were able to do here with systematics of you know, walking along mutating saturation mutagenesis. Thank you. The fourth question is, so with picomolar affinities of an antibody in in vitro assays, what do you think will be um, the estimated affinity in vivo? So the picomolar, um, yeah. So the translation of that neutralized. So those, so the binding affinity of the nanobody. The example of C5 is in the picomole, and that correlates extremely well with the neutralization-based assay. That was the one I showed you. So that's a biological test of neutralization. Your question is, how does that tolerate, toler, correlate with the dose given to an animal? Is, it, is one that I can only wave my hands? Because I, in the UK, we have to be careful to limit our use of animals to um, key questions. So at 0.4 milligrams per kilogram, that was at the rate where it would be possible to scale up and, and feasibly administer nanobodies to humans. So we chose that 0.4 for a reason. So four milligrams per kilogram was chosen because that replicated to some extent what had been done with human antibody therapy against SARS-CoV-2. So therefore we were confident that would give the animals the most benefit or the, the best bet, if you like, for a benefit. 0.4 megs per keg was a back of the envelope what might be feasible for a human to take by inhalation, either nebulized or not. So we have got data that show you can go below 0.4, but it will correlating that dose with affinity is something I don't yet have. That would need a more systematic evaluation of that in the animal model. And I don't have that in to my hand. It's a good question and one that will have to be explored in the commercialization. Thank you. The fifth question is, I think you talk about the trimer and hexamer. So is there a special reasoning for the VHH copy number? Uh, what about dimer or pentamers, for example? Yeah, another really good question. So we chose the trimer for two reasons. One is it makes the molecule big enough it shouldn't come out through the kidneys. So it shouldn't get filtered because there's about a 50 kD cutoff. So it shouldn't get easily filtered. So that was the reason we chose the trimer. The other reason is that to get multivalency. So of course, all human antibodies and llama nanobody and llama antibodies, all of them are multivalent presentation. Uh, so that's the affinity effect. So we wanted to harness the avidity effect. So we assumed that two, two or three would be good. 
and you saw the avidity of the FC fusion was down at the two picomola. So my guess is, at least for the nanobodies we've seen, that two or three probably are about the same. Uh, and these are so tight that we're really titrating the virus. So a back envelope calculation suggests that the neutralization of the nanobody presentations to C5 is roughly one to one. So in essence, we bind every single uh, spike protein in the virus in the neutralization assay. So we're, that's really what we're measuring. Mm -hmm. So we have another question. Uh, do you think the nanobody can still be uh, administered later during the infection um, and still get good improvement or it should be administered in the early stage of the infection? So I don't know, but my guess would be strongly that earlier the better. Uh, based on the human and you know the regeneron type therapies, I think their best results were when it was administered earlier rather than later. And I think that's because if you wait too long, the complications in patients are really what kill them rather than the virus. So by then you get uh, inflammation and damage in the lungs. Thank you. And we have another question from uh, uh, our audience, Marco. He was asking, uh, do you have other targets with um, therapeutic relevance that are under evaluation for nanobody testing? Yes, yeah, so it's a, it's a public record that we were funded by the Wellcome Trust to work with um, uh, groups to develop nanobodies against emerging pandemic viruses. So this, that is something that is active here in the Franklin. Thank you so much. So um, that's all for the questions for today. Um, and thank you so much for uh, Dr. James Nesmith for the great presentation. I learned a lot. I, I'm sure our audience enjoyed your presentation. And please note, um, Critical Labs regular invites brilliant uh, experts in lab science and technology to present their uh, most recent findings in our webinar series. Uh, please visit our website and subscribe to our social media so you won't miss our upcoming events. Thank you so much again, everyone, for joining us. We will see you next time. Thank you all. Have a good day. My sincere apologies for the dropout. No worries. Bye -bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for your time.